Now, you don't have to be British or a monarchist to have been moved by the photos of Queen Elizabeth sitting alone at the funeral of her husband of 73 years, do you? And as she sits opposite the coffin, it's as if she's staring death in the face, but she's having to do it alone. Well, the writer of Ecclesiastes wants you to do the same. He wants you to stare death in the face, but not alone, but with him. And not just death. He wants you to stare life in the face. Because what meaning can there be to life if death is the end? Look at verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now that is an intriguing way to introduce himself, isn't it? Especially given what he says in verse 16. I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. So who could this be other than King Solomon, David's son, endowed with wisdom from God? And yet, despite coming so close to telling us that he is Solomon, like he does in Proverbs or Song of Songs, here he never does. So is this Solomon? Or is this someone else putting himself in Solomon's shoes to get you and me to see life through Solomon's eyes? Because whichever it is, who better than Solomon? Who better than the man who had everything, money, sex and power, with wisdom, but then blew it all to take us down all the paths that we could take? The paths of the hedonist or the academic, the paths of power or politics, the path of the nihilist or the existentialist, each one saying, this is how you can make sense of life. This is how you can make a name for yourself in life. It's why he calls himself, verse one, the preacher. It's the word koaleth. And the koal was the assembly, a gathering of people. The Greek translation is Ecclesia, hence Ecclesiastes. So here is a man, part preacher, part pastor, part philosophy professor, getting us to drill deep. First point then, wanting your life to count. Look at verse two. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What a great way to start a book. Except he also ends the book that way. Chapter 12, verse 8. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. It's the bookends of the whole book, isn't it? This is what the, this book is about. And it's a superlative, vanity of vanities. Like the Song of Songs, or the King of Kings, or the Lord of Lords, or the Holy of Holies. This is the greatest in its field. Vanity of vanities. But think about it. He's talking about life. He's talking about your life. 
But when it comes to things that are vain, that are futile, there is nothing more futile or vain than life. Life is the vanity of vanities. So what is this doing in the Bible? Well, to answer that, you need to think what that word vanity means. It's the word hevel. And the writer uses it some 30 times in the rest of the book. And it's the word for a mist or a breath or a puff of air. So the preacher's saying, that's what life is like. It's fleeting. Like that puff of smoke that you get when you blow out the candle. It's there, but then it's not there. Like your breath on a cold winter's morning. You see it, and then you don't. It's gone. But it's not just fleeting. It's elusive. There's no substance to it. I mean, have you ever tried to hold on to smoke or pin down mist or nail down the air? That's what life is like, he's saying. And not just some things about life are like that, but all is vanity. The sum total of life is existential futility, he's saying. Joys, successes, triumphs, failures, relationships. There's an emptiness, a meaninglessness to them all. Now, maybe you think, you know, if you're a Christian, well, thank goodness that the New Testament corrects all of this negativity. Except it doesn't, does it? The writers repeatedly use the Greek translation of the word hevel to describe life. James says, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. And Paul writes, creation, the whole world, was subjected to futility, to heaven. The good, good and very good of Genesis 1 has become vanity, vanity, everything is vanity of Ecclesiastes 1. In other words, life just doesn't function the way it should the way you want it to. Nothing quite works. You don't get the job that you really should have got. The project that should have gone so well just never gets off the ground like you thought it would. Your hard-working colleague, he gets fired, but the liar gets promoted. The young guy with so much to give dies young, and the bitter old man he just never seems to die. You get the dream job or the romantic partner that you so wanted, but it just doesn't work out how you wanted. And you end up feeling more empty than ever. You know, as that great cultural classic, High School Musical puts it, I get my hopes up and I watch them fall every time. Or as that famous philosopher Guru says in Despicable Me, life's like that sometimes. We're hoping for a unicorn and we get a goat. 
Yes, the preacher says, it's Hevel. Now, in Greek mythology, Sisyphus cheated death, and as a punishment, the gods condemned him to push a giant boulder up a hill. But what happened when he got to the top? The boulder rolled back down to the bottom again, and he had to start all over again, and to do that for all eternity. Endless labour for zero point. Yes, says the preacher, that's life. Verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Just think of the world of business. A company's gain is what is left over when they've paid all the salaries and settled all the accounts, isn't it? It's the profit at the end of the day. Yes, so think of life, the preacher says. What do you gain from it all? What's the profit of it all? And the American dream or just good old-fashioned consumerism tells you you can gain. You really can. Buy this or achieve this or have this and you will gain. You'll be someone. This will satisfy you. This will leave you better off and better than others. And the preacher says, no, take a long, hard look at it. What do you really gain? At the end of your life, when everything is wrapped up, when all the accounts are paid, what will you have to show for the wealth or the possessions or the pleasure or the knowledge or the relationships that you pursued? Or even before death, how many of the goals that you've achieved, that you've reached, were as fulfilling or as lasting as you thought they might be? You know, last week, Reese said, no pain, no gain. You've got to endure to win the prize. And you have. And yet, here the preacher says, listen, you can expend as much energy, you can experience as much pain as you like, but there is still no gain. Now, before you dismiss this as all a whole load of existential angst from a wannabe philosopher who needs to get out more, listen to what Jesus says. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul. You can gain everything, Jesus says. You can gain everything the world has to offer you and you will have gained nothing if you forfeit your soul. Because the preacher is talking, verse three, about life under the sun, about life in a world where this world is all there is, where there's nothing above the sun. With John Lennon, he wants you to imagine, imagine there's no heaven, a world of scientific materialism, no God and no eternity. Except his conclusion is far more sobering and far more real than Lennon's.
the more you erase God from life, the more meaningless, the, the more heavy it becomes. Because, he says, if you pursue secularism through to its logical conclusion, if life under the sun really is all there is, then what gain is there from your life under the sun? What, at the end, will you have achieved from it all? Well, you might say, my friends, my, my family, my children, the good I'll have done, the difference I'll have made, that's my lasting contribution. Lasting, says the preacher, just like smoke is lasting, just like mist is lasting, because they too will die and disappear. There is no lasting eternal gain from anything if there is no eternity. And what of your relationships? If there is no God, love is just a chemical reaction. It has no ultimate meaning. But no one lives like that, do they? Because you couldn't. So people who say there is no God live in denial of what they really believe. You're not facing the facts, the preacher says. If there is no God, if life under the sun is all there is, then there is no ultimate meaning, which means your life and those relationships that you so cherish, they also have no meaning. And you live in a universe without meaning. Second point then, an indifferent cosmos. Gerard Bradley, professor of law at Notre Dame, recently wrote about the famous 1992 Supreme Court ruling that said, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe. In other words, to be really free, you've got to be the meaning maker. No one else can do that for you. You get to decide what the meaning, not just of your life, but of all of life is. And to that, Bradley wrote, this lonely soul, okay, you and me who get to decide what meaning is, this lonely soul stands before the cosmos seeking meaning in it, or more accurately, ascribing meaning to it, but the cosmos can be stubbornly indifferent to human vanity. And it's to the stubbornly indifferent cosmos that the preacher turns. Verse four, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. One day you will die, he says. Baby boomers, generation X, Y, Z, whatever, you'll all go and the next generation will come and the world will carry on as though nothing has happened. The sun will rise and the wind will blow and the rivers will still flow and you will be gone. You know, our culture tells us you're something and the universe, coldly indifferent to our presence, answers, no, you're not, you're nothing. 
We want our lives to count. We want to leave the world a better place for the generations to come. And the preacher says, who are you kidding? Generations come and go. And if there is no God, if there is no judge of good or bad or better or worse, then making the world a better place is hevel. There's no such thing as better. Instead, in verses five to seven, he describes the endless cycle of nature, the cosmic merry-go-round on which you are just a speck. And that also gains nothing. Like Sisyphus pushing his rock up the hill, the sun rises and then it sets only to rise again. The wind blows, but where does it blow? Round and round in circles. The rivers flow into the sea, but the sea is never full. Because if there is no God, then just like us, nature is on a treadmill to nowhere. It's like a runner running laps around the track. It goes nowhere. Charles Taylor, the Canadian philosopher, talks of how up until the last few hundred years, humanity, at least in the West, I mean, the rest of the world still sees it like this. But up until the last 200 years in the West, humanity, we saw creation as enchanted. We believed in God and angels and demons and supernatural spiritual powers. But now, at least in the West, creation has been disenchanted. Now, we just look at the world, at the cosmos as clockwork, run by the rules of nature, but those rules are just products of chance. There is no rule maker. But again, such a view has its logical consequences, doesn't it? In his book, Civilization, Tom Holland quotes the physicist Steven Weinberg. The more the universe seems comprehensible, the more it also seems pointless. How does that leave you feeling? Well, the preacher tells us how it leaves him feeling. Verse eight, all things are full of weariness and man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. When you begin to face the facts of life under the sun, it can become emotionally exhausting. You know, in the words of the great social commentator Mick Jagger, I can't get no satisfaction when you realise that nothing can ultimately satisfy you. There's a weariness to life. Now, maybe you think, oh, come on, things aren't that bad. And as for everything going round and round in circles, think of the progress humanity has made. Verse nine, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Sure, there are new inventions, but people, politics, power plays, they never change. And as for technological advances, they too never really satisfy, do they? The new eye gadget comes along and the world is agog. 
for a few moments until the next one and the next one and the next one. But why does there need to be a next one? Because the last one doesn't quite do it, does it? It doesn't fully satisfy you. But listen, in a closed system, in an under the sun world, you're never going to find satisfaction. You're never going to know that inner filling, that inner satisfaction of your search for meaning. There's never going to be an end to your thirst or your hunger. For that to happen, something has got to break in from the outside, from another world, from a world above the sun. For that to happen, the world has got to be enchanted. But to quote the atheist physicist Richard Lewontin, our materialism must be absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. But such a view of the cosmos has terrible implications, doesn't it? Verse 11. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. You see, no remembrance means no judgment. It means that alongside no ultimate meaning, there will be no ultimate justice. There's going to be no calling to account. But just imagine what could happen if you combined a worldview where there was no meaning and man is just an expendable speck in an indifferent cosmos with there being no ultimate justice. Imagine what could happen if you brought those two things together. No day of judgment, no ultimate justice with no ultimate meaning. Imagine what the powerful could do to the vulnerable. Except the tragedy is you don't have to imagine it, do you? You just have to look at history. Heinrich Himmler, the architect of the Nazi Holocaust, said, There is nothing particular about man. He is but a part of this world. No meaning, no final judgment. All that matters is power now. And where does it end? In the murder of millions in the death camps. Literally in the smoke, the hevel of the crematoria. And yet it's not just the horrors of history, is it? Think of the great or the beautiful moments of life. Think of watching a sunrise or a sunset or of publishing your first paper, or of holding your child. Or think of that act of kindness that someone did to you. Or think of your grandparents who loved you. In a universe where all will be forgotten, none of that matters. But once again, none of us live like none of that matters, do we? Because how could you? So what makes most sense of life? Is it really that life under the sun is all there is, that the nihilists and the existentialists are right, and we're just a cosmic joke, and to get through life you have to bury your head in the sand and pretend? Or does something else make far more sense of life? Well, 
The preacher is going to take us down path after path to help us try and find meaning. But if we leave it to the end of the book for his answer, we are all going to have gone mad like Nietzsche went mad. Last point then, looking above the sun. Now, there is a certain irony, isn't there? When someone says there is no such thing as absolute truth, all truth is socially constructed. It's ironic because in the process they are making an absolute truth claim. And when the preacher says everything is meaningless, ironically, he is saying something of profound meaning. And that alone should tell you, as he is trying to get you to see, that an under-the-sun approach to life is never going to satisfy you intellectually. It can't. Because you can't even begin to tackle the issues of truth and meaning without making use of truth and meaning. And besides, you know deep down that life does have meaning, that love is not just a chemical reaction, that the world is enchanted, that life only makes sense if you do let a divine foot in the door. You see, when you allow the world above to break in, then instead of the cosmos being cold, it becomes just a shadow of the Creator's power and glory. It becomes a symbol, not of the futility of life, but a signpost pointing you higher. And in the words of the Psalms, the sun becomes a bridegroom leaving his bedroom, telling us that from its rising to its setting, God is to be praised. And the rivers begin to dance and the trees clap their hands and the birds, they don't just warble, they worship. As Paul says in Romans 8, creation has been subjected to futility, but it has been subjected in hope in hope of redemption breaking in. You see, if Ecclesiastes is the words of the son of David, king in Jerusalem, they leave you longing for the greater son of David, for the true king of Israel, for the one thing that is new under the sun, for Jesus who comes from the world above the sun and enters our world under the sun. And at the cross, he took upon himself the curse of our sin, the curse of our meaningful work become the toil the heaven of the fall. And God says, behold, in him, in the Messiah, I am doing a new thing. I will make a way in the wilderness. And Jesus ushers in the new covenant in his blood, and he gives us new hearts, and he makes us new creations. And in Revelation, he promises, behold, I am making all things new. Live in a world 
in which Christ has broken in and suddenly life is full of meaning. Firstly, your work, your toil is full of meaning. You know, having spent a whole chapter working out the implications of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, Paul ends 1 Corinthians 15 by saying, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labour is not in vain. You see, when you begin to see your work as unto the Lord, that he's watching over everything and that it's for his glory, whether it's washing the dishes or finalising a deal, your work becomes full of purpose. Secondly, your life can count as you invest in people who will last for eternity, you and they will gain. Thirdly, knowing that Christ has broken into this world removes your fear of death because you know that life does not end in oblivion. Instead, with Paul, you can say, for me to live is Christ but to die is gain. But fourthly, when you live in a world in which Christ has broken in, in which the world above the sun has torn open and come into the world under the sun, it helps keep you from seeking satisfaction in all the wrong places. And that will help dial down your frustration at the hevel of life because you know that work and leisure and relationships and possessions, however good and wonderful they are, and they are, they can never give you the perfect life. They can never deliver that for you. Only the world above can do that. They can never ultimately satisfy you. Only God can. And that means that all these other things they'll find their right place and you would be much less stressed by them. Listen to Paul again. This is his comment on the hevel of life. We do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Fix your eyes above the sun, and life below the sun will still be full of hevel, but you know that something far better is coming.